0: General election was held in the year 92 a fall in a gale boat felt cozy They were sure t'would end up two and two They canvassed the highways and byways Looking for a scrape and a scratch They were so distracted and blinded They saw no one else in the pack but as they sat and watched the count, the labour cry became a shout.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, the following is the result of the ninth count after the distribution of Mr. Killeen's surplus of 227. Bam GM plus 77. Making a total of eight thousand nine hundred and eighty five eight nine eight five. Daly Brendan plus sixty one making a total of seven thousand nine hundred and five seven nine oh five. De Valera Sheila plus sixty four making a total of eight thousand eight hundred and twenty five eight eight two five. Accordingly, as Bam, G, Jam, Bam G.M. has exceeded the quota of 8,922, I now deem him to be elected.
2: And they're carrying him shoulder high here at the Count Centre. My
3: dad had a small shop, a hardware shop, and you had to work in the, after school. You have to work in the hardware shop, and after the hardware shop was over, you went home to do your homework then only. So you could only relax maybe about eight, half eight at night. Yeah, that was... Well, all of us had to do that. How many? Uh, how many? Yeah. were ten of us. Well, as as we grew older, we all graduated and went off. And, uh, that, and you had to even work Saturdays and even Sundays as well, if you needed to uh, work. If they needed you to open the shop, you had to be around. And so... Even after I qualified It was funny, one of the things I remembered That uh, you're not supposed to open the shops in South Africa on a Sunday And this uh, reporter came up And he wanted some uh, nails at, what, on a Sunday afternoon And here was I, it was my second My first day in South Africa, I arrived on Saturday And on Sunday my mother said, come on with me to the shop Here was I, a doctor, and she said, come on to the shop As though I'd never left uh, I thought it was hilarious uh, You know, telling you to go to the shop uh, to become a doctor in South Africa was a big thing because the people wanted you. And in South Africa in the 60s and 50s, there were only three things people would go into after uh, leaving high school would be, you go into medicine, you go into teaching, or you go into become a solicitor. Uh, so my brother become a doctor. So we just felt we'd like to become doctors as well. So the other two brothers went out to become a doctor. I decided I'd go, and then two other Another brother and sister decided they wanted to do medicine as well. So it just evolved because Dad thought that education would be more important than buying property. So he never bought property, he never had money to educate the eldest boy as well. Uh, So he was educated by the local community and he had to pay back that bursary. But his job was to educate the other two brothers and that was his, his function. So he educated the two and the other brother educated me.
4: You came here as a student, is that when you met Claire?
3: Yeah, yeah, I met her in 1969. I came here in 1965 to study, and I met her in 1969. We courted for about two years, and after I qualified then, we said our goodbyes. But uh, we kept corresponding, and uh, the correspondence was regular too. Then we decided we'd meet, but we couldn't meet in South Africa. So we decided we'd meet in Mauritius, which would be two hours flight from South Africa. And which reasonably cheap charter flights from England, which she finally got, and which Ailingus owes us 20 pounds for, <laughs> because uh, she had to take the, because of Elingus's uh, dep- uh, delay in, in Dublin airport, she had to take a taxi from uh, Heathrow Airport to Gatwick Airport, and there was 20 pounds in 1972. It was a lot of money then, uh, but they would not re- give her the 20 pounds. So we spent a holiday there for about two three weeks together.
5: I was heartbroken coming back. Oh, I cried and cried. He was staying an extra day. I think I was coming back before him. There was some... I think he was staying behind the day after me, but, oh, coming back and coming back to Dublin on the 1st of January, which was, you know, (laughs) I hated that, but... um I was, I was very upset leaving because we had such a lovely time. And, you know, so we wrote away, things sort of on and off then. I stopped writing for a while. I think I was a night with him and I stopped. And he got in contact with another friend who was going out with a South African to please ask me to write. So we started writing again. (laughs) And it just went on and on, you know. And a year and a half later, I went out to South Africa then for three months to meet the family. And
3: her coming to South Africa would have presented, did present as a problem as well because she'd be regarded as white and I would be regarded as black. So she arrived in Johannesburg, my sister collected, met met her in Johannesburg, and they went to Lesotho for a holiday. I drove to Lesotho, where we spent a week together, two weeks together, I think it was, and then we drove into South Africa. But I asked one of my white friends in Lesotho, who we just met, met over there, to drive her across the border for me. And she drove her across the border, and I met her there, and we drove to my brother's place. Past my mother's place as well, and we stayed with my brother for about two, three weeks, and it was sort of cloak and dagger stuff as well, she had to wear a trousers, which would look like the Muslim custom, and we she wore a scarf as well a fair amount of the time, so that she would look like what we call a coloured person, which is off white, uh, and that so you know we got away with it, but it was always tense for those few months.
5: It was difficult. I mean, it was quite a culture shock, you know, arriving in... That was 1973. Now, things have changed, you know, a lot since, you know, being back there again a few years ago. But at that particular time, it was quite an experience. I stayed with his sister and family for about two days before we met up with Musa in Lesotho. And staying with them and sort of, you know, the different comments, you know, you're living in an Indian community and you know how they call me the white lady you know and you know lots of things and you go into the shops and the fuss is made of me you know if i go into the sort of european shops they sort of greet me and I am served before other Indian customers. All this I found. Then we had to travel a journey of six hours. We were meeting up with Musa. And there were cafes. Well, I could go in the main entrance and they would have to go around. The toilets, you know, we stopped on the roadside. You go to toilets for whites. I mean, I got the nice and I would, was there a key? Yes, I had a key, so I unlocked. So they, his nieces quickly slipped in. They said, oh, how nice and clean. There's always a towel, there's always soap. And for non-whites, you know, I mean, so, you know, these were all the little things that I found, you know, that it was a bit, you were kind of embarrassed at times that, God, why do other sort of European people behave? You know, I did feel very, the apartheid sort of, as you say, really sort of, this was the reality now, you're staying with a non-white family and these are all the things that they do have to, you know, put up with.
3: I suppose it was building up all the time and I, I didn't know, maybe I didn't realise it I didn't know what was happening to me as well but my mother knew that and she definitely knew and she was she she was afraid and uh, and that so uh, she spoke to Claire about it as well and was hoping that the relationship would end but it didn't end so million. They've been looking for me? Um, Even if they were Any <laughs> <laughs> the post study from home? No. think from who? That's right.
5: It She had, well, all the letters had been coming from me and she stopped and sort of, well, it, that was okay, I suppose. There were letters that were coming, but I was still that distance from, so she still felt. And I think in the meantime, she would have asked him about getting married. Yes, he was still living with his mother at this stage, yeah. She would have often perhaps, you know, suggested it's time now for you to get married, you know. And the letters, are, he didn't have much of an interest. He was working quite hard, I think, and he had one particular family of boys, friends, and just la- messing with them, you know. There, I mean, you don't really go out, the uh, the Indian families don't really go out. There's no such thing as kind of girlfriends, you know, everything is kind of, you marry the girl, more or less, you know, or you just know her as a friend. So there isn't that, like what we have here at all, going out with each other. His mother at that stage, yes, was beginning to get a little worried now I'd come for a holiday. So she told me at the end of the holiday then, she said her English isn't that good. She said... You, good friend of Musa, good friend, okay, you go home now, you had a nice holiday. <laughs> so I said, yes, yes, you say anything just for you. <laughs> so my father was very much, you know, totally against, you know, on the religious side and very much so, the religion. My mother sort of was the type of person that, you know, it's okay but like your father, his reaction is going to you know, that was the big thing with her how he would react and he did react very, very upset. He met him in Dublin and I said this was just a friend, introduced him. Musa made the mistake of asking, How's Francis my sister? And then my father sort of how does he know Francis? So then it that he, that he had met Francis it earlier on, so he put two and two together. So he wrote to me and he was going through very upset about it and he said he would get a nervous breakdown if I continued and the fact that he was not a Catholic and where had I gone wrong? Why had I lost my religion? He assumed that I had lost my It went on crazy. and So I wrote and told him that Musa would be going home soon and I was breaking it all off. And he was relieved when Musa qualified because Musa went home. So the distance again was a big They were quite happy, you know. When I went to South Africa in 73, I never told my parents. I just flew there. I told my sisters and brothers. And I said, when I'm there, I will send a card. Because if I tell them beforehand, I don't want my mother to be getting, my father would be reacting to her and upset. So that would upset. So I thought, rather, just fly there. And my family knew that if anything that I was on that, I was gone. But he contacted a priest who was out in South Africa to get in contact with me. Now, I was travelling from one house to another, so when I came to one house, well, his brother telephoned me one day to say, there's a letter here from South Africa for you, and I said, can you open it? You know. So he, he opened, he said it's from a father, a local priest from home who was out there, for him to contact me and to talk sense to me. Very worried, the fact that I'd gone, because he thought I was gone, to stay there. You know. So I got in contact, said, don't worry, I'll be back within two or three months, you know. that was a lifetime to my father because he didn't know what was going to happen in case I married this chap. And I think a lot of the thing that time was uh, Muslims can have four wives. So you'll just be, you know, you'll be dropped after a while and there'll be another. I think that was a big worry too, you know, the religion was the main one. Did he ever come round? He came round, he did. Yes, he was in contact then with um, the Jesuit priests. And that priest, it seems, had been writing to my father saying... You know, never mind, there's lots of different people. This chap is a Muslim. That is a religion too. And he put it all sort of in kind of context. And he told him, you know, when, you better go, you should go to your daughter's wedding because perhaps if you don't, she may reject you for a while. So on that he went. And that day he was sad. At the same time, he just, overnight then, he got to know Musa then better. And, you know, there was no more hassle. That was, that was the
6: end of it, you know.
3: Yeah, I think that if you marry across a culture you've got to see the person first of all in their culture and also you've got to see them in your culture but I think it's quite important to see if they fit in and also the person You there's a lot of give and take when you're marrying across the cultures because of uh, one, maybe religion uh, way of life thinking, behaviour and even food so there's a lot of give and take in it and it, it adds a little bit extra strain to the marriage but a lot depends on the two people kind of seeing this and working it through themselves because even when the children come as well there's a problem there and uh, that like for example names of the child you have to choose a name that will suit maybe both families which is quite important to to me now that would be important as well i choose a name that my will fit into Ireland and would fit into say the Indian culture and that so and so far we've worked it out quite well. Your children are Omar? Miriam and Roshin. So, Omar would be between both. Omar full of Omar Kayam and the Yorubiyad of Omar Kayam. You know, so, and Omar Sharif. So, you know, it was acceptable there and with my family. Uh, Then Miriam would be what we call Mariam. And uh, that in South Africa. So, it would be quite a religious name as well. Uh, Then Roshin is a name that would be used. It means the flower in Persian, and roshin here would be acceptable in Ireland. So, you know, these are the things you have to take into consideration. And I'm a bit liberal, which means I'm not too fussed about that, about religion. Uh, Claire is quite religious. Uh, so, but uh, I, one thing I didn't want was, I didn't want the children to be brought up in Catholic faith just like that. If I taught myself that maybe at a later stage when they'd grown up, they could make up their own minds. And to what religion they wanted to, so for years we told my my parents that they were Muslims, and we told Claire's parents they were Catholics, uh, and that so they thought. Uh, but you know we kept that up uh, for a long time. They used to go to mass, and that would clear as children. And that but uh, uh, so the boy he kept going. He didn't mind. He was able to cope with it. no! At the age of seven, he had a bit of problem in the school. That's right. Is it uh, Holy Communion at seven? And that, and uh, he was the only one in his class, I think, uh, that in Cork. And I spoke. I think Claire spoke to the priest. Like we you know, when the whole class was going. Why not let him go to the formalities? Like he's not baptized a Catholic, but he goes to church and he knows the religious teachings and so. Why not just for the formality and make him feel good about it? But the priest refused to do that. Uh, that got me a bit annoyed because I thought there was no, you know, there was no loss in it. Uh, so he didn't go through that. But we worked we worked it out with him, explained things to him. And he took it fairly well. And then uh, my daughter, Miriam, that's right, she was there. And we explained things to her as well. And, uh, that, and she didn't seem to mind. She knew she was missing out on something. All her friends were going through it, and she felt she was missing out on something. Then it came when she was 12 at 13, was the...
4: Confirmation. Conf-
3: confirmation at 12, 13. And all her friends were going towards confirmation and that. And uh, she wanted to be like all her friends. And she was at that age where she wanted to be like her friends. And she was quite upset at not being allowed to be uh, confirmed. Uh, So then I thought about it and became more sensible about it. I said, "Okay, if you want to become a Catholic, you can go and become a Catholic. So Claire took her and took... Well, I said if if she was going to do it, I let uh, the youngest one go as well because two sisters, I said, I'll let her go and get... Uh, yes, so I think the, the priest, I think, baptized both of them after that. So I think both of them follow the Catholic religion at the moment. And the Umar, is to, he said, no, stay the, the way he is.
5: Sometimes a lot of I feel that the, yes, the background comes out, you know. Yeah, sure, you know, the women sort of yeah, that's your job. I mean, the children and the cooking and the caring for the house, you know, that's what a woman gets married for. You know, they're the things. You know, a lot of the the thinking, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, he wouldn't be rigid like the way you know that they would. I mean, when they come for a holiday, his mother came twice and that. It's 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 not too difficult, but I think living there though. You have to, because they have to think about the neighbours and everybody. There's a lot of, you know, so I would have found it hard living on the doorstep, I think. Brothers and all that are fine, they're grand, you know, and there would be a lot more emphasis on cooking all the time. And you don't have a say to, I find, with the women, excuse me, that they don't think anything of your religion, Muslims and Muslims. So automatically children and I should be teaching the religion of him you know, you're kind of like a nothing at times, you feel at times a little bit you know, they don't even think that, you know, I'm a Catholic and that, that is my religion and I, I stick with that but, you know Did
4: you ask Claire or the kids, before you actually went for this, would it be okay?
3: Uh, uh, sort of, I kind of told them that I'd be going for a the diet. Uh, they were a bit surprised because I had kind of reduced my activities but They kind of knew that once Labour was going to put in a candidate, that uh, they knew, I think they had an idea that I was the only one that could go forward as Labour in Clare. But then the party nominated me, so I said, OK, I'd go then.
4: Did they have a choice?
3: I don't think so. I don't think so, because there was nobody else with such a prominence in Labour in County Clare as I had.
5: When he was nominated, I said, sure, give it a go. You know, this is just another one. You know, I mean, he's been so involved in different things. So I said, I should give it a go. Not realising, sort of. I thought, oh, well, it's an experience for him and he might as well, you know, see how he does.
0: We face north through Ruan and Crushing For a fin home of Tony Killeen Through the Spine and Le Hinch on to Doolin And we cruise down the coast to Kilkeen
6: Joe Walsh is one of the leading Labour activists in Clare. When we came to this general election, I can't say we were all that well prepared for it. I'd have to admit that there was no sort of long-term strategy in place. Beyond that, we were working hard. We had contested and done fairly well in the local elections. Uh, we ended up with one seat in the county council, but we almost got another three. It was that kind of a thing. But you know yourself, almost getting something is hard to build a... Build an organisation on. And we had the usual bit of one watching the other and all of that sort of thing. So, the heel of the hunt, we had our selection convention here and nominated uh, Bamji, as he's known affectionately, Musa Bamji. And everybody in the Labour Party, uh, even people here in the constituency, would have said, well, Is there any point in fighting it?
3: The branch felt I should go forward. I wasn't too happy about it, I was a bit reticent about it because you know, being an outsider and that I felt it was an Irish people should be going forward. They can understand the politics more and be part of it and it'd be easier to get the votes if you're local. But uh, the party nominated me. They insist, the branch insisted I go forward because they felt that they knew what was going on in the grassroots and felt that I would do, get a good vote and that I had a high good name in the community. So they, they nominated me for it to the... Co- co- constituency branch, and they sent it to Dublin. I think Dublin had a bit of reservations about it as well. At first, they had to teach me how to canvas. (laughs) I used to send the canvases in front, who'd done it before, and I would stay in the back, and then they started pushing me to the forward and start talking and telling the people. You know, I had this impression of uh, politicians, they're only false. There's a lot of falseness about it all, you know, that you're going forward and telling them things, and you really don't mean it, but all you want to do is uh, I canvassed the people to get the the vote, you know, and I still felt that about myself. I couldn't be false like that. And uh, that finally it got me forward. When I started getting the enthusiasm that I felt right now, I know in my own mind that I could be genuine to myself and sincere if I was asking a person for a vote, I was asking it so that I could do something for them. And then I felt good. Then I went forward and started shaking hands and meeting people. And, you know, I felt good about that. I wasn't I wasn't kissing babies or anything like that. Uh, but I was knocking on doors and asking people and telling them what we hoped to do.
6: We had a lot going against us, though, in Clare, because Fianna Fáil regarded it as theirs. It belongs to them. And to some extent, that was the rock they perished on. Because I would say they never had put enough work into Clare. There was an assumption that the loyalty was here. And services here had been abysmally run down. There was a question mark over Shannon Airport. And whether or not all aircraft going in and out from Dublin to the States will always have to land in Shannon is one thing. But certainly having Shannon there and developing it and developing the region from an industrial and tourist point of view is very, very important. What
4: was he like on the canvas? He says he's never, he'd never canvassed before.
6: He was unusual and uh, he's an unusual politician in irish terms by any standards he was very very good he was very warm and people took to him people were delighted with him; they wanted to meet him very open and he talked to people about the health facilities he talked about youth he talked about employment he talked about the need for facilities for young people and he was so good with young people i remember one night and i was already shattered and we had finished the canvas and i thought right let me go home or at least go to a pub and have a few jars or something and he brought me into this pub the Lifford Inn it's a fine pub it's frequented by very much the young set and uh, i wouldn't say i'm past the first flush yet or anything like that uh, clean up, but uh, it's a while since i was in a pub like it and i went into this pub with Bamji uh, and with helen liddy and it was dark and flashing lights and loud music and all these beautiful young people, all dressed in black, who all seemed so terribly confident. And I was absolutely transfixed to the floor. I couldn't I couldn't move. You know, I didn't know what way to turn. But here's Bamji going around and they were calling him over. And he was chatting away to them and talking about the music and talking about the crack and talking about the dances and talking about the football and... They wanted him from table to table. They were delighted with him. And, of course, because I was looking so askance, I suppose, at the lot of them, you know, I was getting unfriendly glances back, you know, it was sort of a vicious circle. I went over to him after a while, you know, I stayed there. And Helen, Liddy, in fairness to her, Helen was travelling round and chatting to them too, but I just couldn't whack it. And I'd have thought, I mean, I'd a fairly hard neck and I can go in any place, but just this particular grouping.
2: One thing I would say about when he was canvassing... You know the way lots of politicians go about and when they're canvassing they say we'll do this, that and whatever and it's all wonderful and it's all so high tech and you think oh
5: like you know, it wouldn't be great if they did that, but really it's so unrealistic, a lot of what they'll offer. But he was saying things like people will say, uh, said to him, um, well, what's your view on the small farmers? And he said, well, I don't know anything about the small farmers, but I'm willing to learn. So he was being honest and he wasn't saying, oh, well, I'm all knowing, which a lot of the politicians say. So he was down to earth, and he was what the people would like to see because he was a change, and he was he was being honest with
3: them.
4: Cayman Jones, Claire FM, is there a Bamji factor?
2: Oh, there definitely is a Bamji factor. Um, we've been trying to analyse it uh, since the election. I think what was different about him was his attitude. He had. A very different attitude uh, to the conventional politician. He was not the kind of politician who said, you voted for me the last time, because there was no last time, and your father voted for me, or your mother voted for me. His approach was quite different, or that you will you'll back the party once again. His approach was quite different. He had no track record in politics. He was very new. He presented himself as he was. I'm different. I'm Dr. Bamji. Um, I'm a breath of fresh air, and I think you should give me a chance
0: we part of We're all of the Bombay, and we really showed them up. For Bungie wins the cup. For Clare are the greatest football team.
4: From the Dublin point of view, when he was elected, nobody could even pronounce his name. Um, other politicians in Clare did, were they nervous of of his potential winning vote? Was he perceived as a potential winner here in Clare?
2: There were many people here who couldn't pronounce his name either, so uh, that's, that's not just confined to Dublin. I think there were very, many people and many politicians and many party people from both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who were bowled over by his success. However, there were many of them also who were beginning to realise in the final week or maybe two weeks of the campaign uh, that Bamji star was rising and they were getting feedback, they were getting strange feedback uh, from various parts of the constituency that things weren't quite right. Maybe they couldn't always put their finger on what was wrong but there w- they, were, they, were, they, were, they were getting uneasy, yes. And some of the more astute of them were saying in the closing days of the campaign, yes he had a very good chance. They were saying that privately of course.
4: Again from the Dublin point of view, or perhaps from the view outside Clare to elect a South African Indian was viewed as a very strange thing for the Clare voting public to have done was it that strange?
2: I don't think so you know because this constituency in 1917 and at every subsequent election up to the end of the 1950s Uh, voted a man with a very Spanish name and a name when he came to Clare first that they couldn't uh, pronounce. Uh, De Valera was called De Valera and he was called all sorts of things. So the idea of voting uh, for a foreigner is not exactly new to the people of County Clare and also the idea of voting for outsiders is not new to the people of County Clare. After all, this constituency voted for Charles Stuart Parnell and this constituency voted for that well known carryman Daniel O'Connell. So there is a a certain history of voting for outsiders. But you should also remember the county chair has changed a lot over the last 20 to 30 years. Shannon Airport has made an enormous difference. There are new people coming into this place all the time. They come as executives of multinationals. Uh, they come because they're connected with GPA or with uh, some other organization like that. We have a big tourism industry here in the county. So the fa- the idea that we're sort of isolated, isolated natives sitting on the cliffs of Moher is a bit dated at this stage. And uh, so much of the attention here at the county Centre is focused on Dr. Bamji. All his supporters have gathered around him in front of me. He's now being born loft, shoulder high, photographers clicking cameras um, everywhere. Uh, it's a very exciting... never
3: been to it. To account before, even uh, so, uh, I took the day off because I, I thought that from the papers and that, and talking to people, that they'd be separate. That the whole of uh, Thursday would be used for separating between uh, the elections and because and the abortion referendum. So that would take the whole day. Then I expected the voting papers to be facing into the officials. Not the way in Ireland. It's facing towards the public and for the tallymen to see. Now, I, you know, I, I, I like to question that part of it, and that. So, uh, instead of what well, I walked in there with my ordinary working clothes, if you want to put it that way, and suddenly realised that RTU were here with the cameras, and all this. It was a real serious thing that was happening today. I expected it to be on Friday because I told all my uh, people to go away, go go to work, and Friday was the important day. You know, I expected the votes to be counted on Friday. And uh, I said, something's going on here. I listened to Cayman Jones, and he was talking informally to others about it, and I I couldn't understand most of it. Uh, But they realised that I was getting a vote, and I said, "Hey, wait, i better go home and put on the suit, because the television cameras might be here. And, And I was driving home, and suddenly a clear FM came on, and Cayman Jones says, well, the surprise is, Bamji has 9% of the vote, and this is in the rural parts of Clare. And then I suddenly realised, gee, that's important, because we were only expecting 30% of the vote in the whole county, which was, which was, you know, so then I came home quickly, put on the suit and went back, <laughs> you know. And then I really enjoyed it, because now I knew it was the real thing. If I have missed anybody out... (laughs) Or if I've missed anything out, please forgive me. It's a day when I, as a psychiatrist, am nervous.
5: (laughs) And that Friday he was elected, that even... I mean, there was fantastic excitement. I went, took the children from the school on that Friday, and there was photographs being taken, and there was a lot of tension, and at the same time, there was fear and excitement. There was all kinds of emotion, you know. And then when he got elected and the excitement driving home here, my sister had come from Dublin. She was at the count for a few for a while. And the excitement and coming here and, you know, I just wanted to hoot the horn all the way. So he was already he was gone to Limerick now at this stage, so we're coming here and once we came in the door the phone started, you know, one of his golfing friends, he was the first. And I think that even it never stopped. We were going back out, we were celebrating, know. Yeah. And that the phone was non-stop ringing, you know, non-stop. And then it started the following morning, six o'clock from South Africa, his brother telephoned. And I think well, three o'clock, I was still in my dressing gown. I don't know how, about 300 calls. It was, you know, I mean, <laughs> the, the excitement, you know. The excitement was something. I were you thrilled then i
4: mean you, you, you
5: I was thrilled for him to think that you know i mean the f- the fact that he got such a very good uh, vote from all the different small areas and to think that you know gosh he said he could do it, and he has sort of done it, and plus it, I mean it has given us i mean the important people you sort of you know you talk you meet Michael D. Higgins and you meet lots of people that you just see on television you read about, but it's when you meet them then you you know it's exciting and it's at the same time it's
4: fantastic, you know. It was nerve-wracking for you at the start too, wasn't it? The thought of meeting all these people. It was,
5: yes, it was nerve-wracking. It was great then getting Christmas card from Mary Robinson and Dick Spring and, you know, all this sort of, you know, you sort of, from the president of Ireland, you know that you're just maybe one of the few hundred in Ireland that have got a card. You I found that very exciting and all nerve-wracking, yes, saying, oh gosh, you know, (laughs) the fact that I wasn't sort of very political or sort of involved, like he would be able, I thought, oh, how am I going to cope with this, you know? And then once you start meeting people, I found you know, people are generally exceptionally nice, and so put you at your ease, and you sort of fall into it. Then you sort of you're so excited for him the fact that he has done it, and you know all the people coming to him, and there's such there's so many jokes, and you know he plays it down at the same time. Then you know. I'll
3: take it.
1: No, maybe that chap is looking for you.
3: Uh, people have a vote, but they don't. They say, This is my vote, and you have to come and claim it. So I met some people who said, Where were you all these weeks? I was waiting for you to give you my vote. And I found it very strange because a vote is something that the people have. And when they know there's an election coming on, they must use it in a way that they want. That it doesn't. They, they, you know, it should be used in a productive way, not what's in Ireland at the moment. Because you got me the medical card, or because my father knew you, or, you know you did you did the community a community favour, I must give you the vote. No, it's what the person stands for, what the person is going to do for the community in a broader sense. What's he going to do about the major issues in the country, and what his party is going to do? That is the major issue. There's too much of this personal vote. That's why the, at the present moment I find the politicians are good constituency workers, well, in fact they are social workers, most of them are I think they're filling in pension forms and I find even myself doing it and it's rather degrading to be honest Which you as a doctor, as a consultant, to be ringing up uh, departments and asking for well what's happening about so-and-so's house, you know I feel it's a social worker's job. You you to to, some chap had a problem social welfare, i just tell him, well,
4: you're
5: Yeah, tell him I'm busy, yeah. tell
2: him busy, you can contact me tomorrow. So, morning
1: Shannon.
4: Is he a naive politician?
2: Well, I think he is, but that's an attractive side to him. I think he's naive in the sense that he's not involved in cute whorism, which uh, has been a hallmark of politics here in County Clare and in many other constituencies as well. So from that point of view, yes, he is naive. Uh, he may not be able to pull the stroke. And, of course, pulling the stroke can make the difference between holding on to your seat and not holding on to your seat if traditional politics continue. Um, but I think his naivety, if you call it that, was also an important factor in getting him elected because he didn't belong to the old guard.
6: He's a different kettle of fish. He's not somebody that they would be accustomed to. And uh, The Irish political scene is a fairly tough one. I'm not saying Bemji isn't tough. I think he's very tough. He's no pushover by any manner of means. He's a very intelligent man. He knows the meaning of hard work. He knows the meaning of misery. But he's not interested in all the little skullduggery, the minutiae of, you know, strategy about this. You know, the way others—I mean, myself—I'd have to accuse myself of it. You know, I quite enjoy that. Uh, wondering is this going to happen? Blathering about this and all of that. But he's not a bit like that. He doesn't like to waste time on those sort of things.
3: I'm still getting into. People are phoning me to find them jobs for one thing, it's, you know. That's hoping that me, me, a TD, will get them a job, uh, and I will try to get them a job so that I'll get the vote. That that's one. People asking me that the daughters are going for interviews, and will I ring somebody up and get, uh, pull, pull, you know, say how good the daughter is? I may never have met the daughter. Don't even know how good the daughter is. You know, that kind of things are things that uh, this country seems to be famous for. And all that has to stop if you want to get in. Because this is local corruption. I call it local corruption. You know, we talk about corruption on the top, which we're all worried about and talking about now. But what about local corruption?
4: Are you a different person?
3: Uh, No, I found myself, I spent two days in the Leinster house one day. and Suddenly I began to feel different, think different and behave differently. And I realised that suddenly I, and I walked out and I went for a walk down Grafton Street, went out, had a meal outside and thought about things for a while and said, no, be careful that you could change and you could become like the rest and just be a politician and forget about the people. And that's not what it's about. It's, uh, you know, you could, it has, each, each institution has its own way of making you think and behave. And I think that's wrong. I think we have to get out of Leinster House and feel a part of the people, you know, and uh, staying in Leinster House all the time, it gives you a a sense of s- too much self-importance, and uh, that, and you suddenly make feel that like you're the greatest, and that you can do what you want, or you're different from everybody else, and that 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 can be disastrous for yourself, for for your relationships and your family when you go home, because everybody else is making you feel important when you go home you're just a normal person to your wife and you can't understand this difference between everybody else praising you and talking good about you and you come home and you, uh, the wife you know wants to talk to you on simple everyday problems and maybe you don't want to listen to her maybe the television comes on and you want to watch the political program or the phone rings and you have more time for your constituents than you have for your own family and then your children as well you can become distant with your children as well and and uh, they talk to you, but you're not listening, and you're somewhere else. And uh, that's that's dangerous.
2: My name is Roshi. I go to school in Holy Family. I am seven years old. And who's your dad? Um, Dr. Fusabamji.
4: And what does he do?
2: He's a doctor, and he, and he helps people in the hospital, and he goes to the doyer.
5: There's less and less time with the family, so it means that I had to spend more time with the children even when he gets back from the door I mean it is putting on the news or putting on political programs it is reading the papers talking about the letters or the phone calls the different queries or I have so many things to do for him or personal things in town so there's a lot of time you're inclined to put the children sort of saying look at when he comes back I have we have to talk about this and there so the time from them and that's the only part that but then again, I think they take it now. The bigger ones are OK. They take it that, oh, he's busy with all this. Roche and finds it a little bit. or that he doesn't have time anymore and that sort of thing. But no, I'm glad that he's gone into it. And the fact that he'll be able to do, I think he has helped out a few people and that he will get through things, you know. Yeah, so from that point, I think if you have someone there that can get through and sort out some problems, it's good. It's a good feeling, you know. I feel that
6: if, if the whole Leinster House thing and the slowness, the problems of the legislature as it is at the moment, if that doesn't pour the socks off our new TD, um, that we're going to have a Labour seat here for a long, long time in Clare.
0: Oh, yes, you're right now, bamji yes, you're right. You've done the Labour Party proud tonight. We've been 40 years awaiting, and the seat we have taken and we're right now, bamji yes, we're right.